I was silent for some moments. Well, as I knew Thorndyke, I was completely taken by surprise, a sensation, indeed, that I experienced anew every time that I accompanied him on one of his investigations. His marvellous power of coordinating apparently insignificant facts, of arranging them into an ordered sequence and making them tell a coherent story, was a phenomenon that I never got used to. Every exhibition of it astonished me afresh. If your inferences are correct, I said, the problem is practically solved. There must be an abundant trace inside the house. The only question is, which house is it? Quite so, replied Thorndyke. That is the question, and a very difficult question it is. A glance at that interior doubtless cleared up the whole mystery. But how are we to get to that glance? We cannot enter houses speculatively to see if they present traces of a murder. At present, our clue breaks off abruptly. The other end of it is in some unknown house, and if we cannot join up the two ends, our problem remains unsolved. For the question is, you remember, who killed Oscar Brodsky? Then what do you propose to do? I asked. The next stage of the inquiry is to connect some particular house with this crime. To that end, I can only gather up all available facts and consider each in all its possible bearings. If I cannot establish any such connection, then the inquiry will have failed, and we shall have to make a fresh start, say at Amsterdam, if it turns out that Brodsky really had diamonds on his person, as I have no doubt he had. Here our conversation was interrupted by arrival at the spot where the body had been found. The stationmaster had halted, and he and the inspector were now examining the near rail by the light of the lanterns. Remarkably little blood about, said the former. I've seen a good many accidents of this kind, and there's never been a lot of blood, both on the engine and on the road. It is very curious. Thorndyke glanced at the rail with but slight attention. That question had ceased to interest him. But the light of his lantern flashed onto the ground at the side of the track, a loose, gravelly soil mixed with fragments of chalk, and from thence to the soles of the inspector's boots, which were displayed as he knelt by the rail. You observe, Jervis, he said in a low voice, and I nodded. The inspector's boot soles were covered with adherent particles of gravel and conspicuously marked by the chalk on which he had trodden. "'You haven't found the hat, I suppose?' Thorndyke asked, stooping to pick up a short piece of string that lay on the ground at the side of the track. "'No,' replied the inspector. "'But it can't be far off. You seem to have found another clue, sir,' he added with a grin, glancing at the piece of string. "'Who knows?' said Thorndyke. "'A short end of white twine with a green strand in it. It may tell us something later. At any rate, we'll keep it.' and taking from his pocket a small tin box containing, among other things, a number of seed envelopes, he slipped the string into one of the latter, and scribbled a note in pencil on the outside. The inspector watched his proceedings with an indulgent smile, and then returned to his examination of the track in which Thorndyke now joined. "'I suppose the poor chap was near-sighted,' the officer remarked, indicating the remains of the shattered spectacles. "'That might account for his having strayed onto the line.' "'Possibly,' said Thorndyke. He had already noticed the fragments scattered over a sleeper and the adjacent ballast, and now once more produced his collecting box, from which he took another seed envelope. "'Would you have me a pair of four steps, Jervis?' he said. "'And perhaps you wouldn't mind taking a pair yourself and helping me to gather up these fragments.' As I complied, the inspector looked up curiously. "'There wasn't any doubt about these spectacles belong to the deceased, is there?' he asked. "'He certainly wore spectacles, for I saw the mark on his nose.' "'Still, there is no harm in verifying the fact,' said Thorndyke, and he added to me in a lower tone, "'Pick up every particle you can find, Jervis. It may be most important.' "'I don't quite see how,' I said, groping amongst the shingle for the light of the lantern in search of the tiny splinters of glass. "'Don't you?' returned Thorndyke. "'Well, look at these fragments. Some of them are a fair size, but many of them on the sleeper are mere grains, 
and consider their number. Obviously the condition of the glass does not agree with the circumstances in which we find it. It is a thick concave of spectacle lenses broken into a great number of minute fragments. Now, how are they broken? Not merely by falling, evidently. Such a lens, when it is dropped, breaks into a small number of large pieces. Nor were they broken by the wheel passing over them, for they would then have been reduced to fine powder, and that powder would have been visible on the rail, which it is not. Spectacle frames, you may remember, presented the same incongruity. They were battered and damaged more than they would have been by falling, but not nearly so much as they would have been if the wheel had passed over them. What do you suggest, then? I asked. The appearances suggest that the spectacles had been trodden on, but if the body was carried here, the probability is that the spectacles were carried here too, and that they were then already broken, for it is more likely that they were trodden on during the struggle than that the murder trod on them after bringing them here, hence the importance of picking up every fragment. But why? I inquired rather foolishly, I must admit. Because if when we have picked up every fragment that we can find, there are still remaining missing a large portion of the lenses, then we can reasonably expect that would tend to support our hypothesis, and we might find the missing remainder elsewhere. If, on the other hand, we find as much of the lenses as we could expect to find, we must conclude that they were broken on this spot. While we were conducting our search, the two officials were circling round with their lanterns in quest of the missing hat. And when we had at length picked up the last fragment, and a careful search, even aided by a lens, failed to reveal any other, we could see their lanterns moving, like will-o'-the-wisps, some distance down the line. "'We may as well see what we have got before our friends come back,' said Thorndyke, glancing at the twinkling light. "'Lay the case down on the grass by the fence. It will serve for a table.' I did so, and Thorndyke, taking a letter from his pocket, opened it, spread it out flat on the case, securing it with a couple of heavy stones, although the night was quite calm. Then he tipped the contents of the seed envelope out on the paper, and carefully spreading out the pieces of glass, looked at them for some moments in silence. And as he looked, there stole over his face a very curious expression. With sudden eagerness, he began picking out the large fragments and laying them on two visiting cards which he had taken from his card case. Rapidly, and with wonderful deftness, he fitted the pieces together, and as the reconstituted lenses began gradually to take shape on their cards, I looked on with growing excitement. For something in my colleague's manner told me that we were on the verge of a discovery. At length, the two ovals of glass lay on their respective cards, complete save for one or two small gaps, and the little heap that remained consisted of fragments so minute as to render further reconstruction impossible. Then Thorndyke leaned back and laughed softly. This is certainly an unlooked-for result, said he. What is? I asked. Don't you see, my dear fellow, there's too much glass. We have almost completely built up the broken lenses, and the fragments that are left over are considerably more than are required to fill up the gaps. I looked at the little heap of small fragments, and saw at once that it was as he had said. There was a surplus of small pieces. It is very extraordinary, I said. What do you think can be the explanation? The fragments will probably tell us, he replied, if we asked them intelligently. He lifted the paper and the two cards carefully onto the ground, and, opening the case, took out the little microscope, in which he fitted the lowest power objective and eyepiece, having a combined magnification of only ten diameters. Then he transferred the minute fragments of glass to a slide, and, having arranged the lantern as a microscope lamp, commenced his examination. Ha! he exclaimed presently. The plot thickens. There is too much glass, and yet too little. That is to say, there are only one or two fragments here that belong to the spectacles, not nearly enough to complete the building up of the lenses. The remainder consists of a soft, uneven, moulded glass, easily distinguished from the clear, hard, optical glass, 
these foreign fragments are all curved, as if they had formed part of a cylinder, and are, I should say, portions of a wine-glass or tumbler. He moved the slide once or twice, and then continued. We are in luck, Jervis. Here is a fragment with two little diverging lines etched on it, evidently the points of an eight-rayed star, and here is another with three points, the ends of three rays. This enables us to reconstruct the vessel perfectly. It was a clear, thin glass, probably a tumbler, decorated with scattered stars. I dare say you know the pattern. Sometimes there is an ornamented band in addition, but generally the stars form the only decoration. Have a look at the specimen. I had just applied my eye to the microscope when the station master and the inspector came up. Our appearance, seated on the ground with the microscope between us, was too much for the police officer's gravity, and he laughed long and joyously. You must excuse me, gentlemen, he said apologetically, but really, you know, to an old hand like myself, it does look a little well. You know, I dare say a microscope is a very interesting and amusing thing, but it doesn't get you much forwarder in a case like this, does it? Perhaps not, replied Thorndyke. By the way, where did you find the hat, after all? We haven't found it, the inspector replied. Then we must help you to continue the search, said Thorndyke. If you will wait a few moments, we will come with you. He poured a few drops of xylol balsam on the cards to fix the reconstituted lenses to their supports, and then, packing them and the microscope in the case, announced that he was ready to start. Is there any village or hamlet near? he asked the stationmaster. None nearer than Caulfield. It's about half a mile from here. And where is the nearest road? There's an half-made road that runs past a house of about three hundred yards from here. It belonged to a building estate that was never built. There was a footpath from it to the station. Are there any other houses near? No, that was the only house for half a mile round, and there's no other road near here. Then the probability is that Brodsky approached the railway from that direction, as he was found on that side of the permanent way. The inspector agreed with his view, as we all set off slowly towards the house, piloted by the stationmaster and searching the ground as we went. The wasteland over which we passed was covered with patches of docks and nettles, through each of which the inspector kicked his way, searching with feet and lantern for the missing hat. A walk of three hundred yards brought us to a low wall enclosing a garden, beyond which we could see a small house, and here we halted, while the inspector waded into a large bed of nettles beside the wall and kicked vigorously. Suddenly there came a clinking sound mingled with objurgations, and the inspector hopped out, holding one foot and soliloquizing profanely. I wonder what sort of fool put that thing like that in a bed of nettles, he explained, stroking the injured foot. Thorndyke picked the object up and held it in the light of a lantern, displaying a piece of three-quarter-inch rolled iron bar about a foot long. Doesn't seem to have been here very long, he observed, examining it closely. There's hardly any rust on it. Been there long enough for me, growled the inspector, and I like to bang it on the head of the blight that put it there. Callously indifferent to the inspector's sufferings, Thorndyke continued calmly to examine the bar. At length, resting his lantern on the wall, he produced his pocket lens with which he resumed his investigation proceeding that so exasperated the inspector that the afflicted official limped off in Dudrum, followed by the stationmaster, and we heard him presently rapping at the front door of the house. Give me a slide, Jervis, with a drop of farant on it, said Thorndyke. There are some fibres sticking to this bar. I prepared the slide, and having handed it to him together with a cover glass, a pair of forceps, and a needle, set up the microscope on the wall. I'm sorry for the inspector, Thorndyke remarked with his eye applied to the little instrument. That was a lucky kick for us. Just take a look at the specimen. I did so, and having moved the slide about until I had seen the whole of the object, I gave my opinion. Red wool fibres, blue cotton fibres, and some yellow vegetable fibres that looked like jute. Yes, said Thorndyke. The same combination of fibres as that which we found on the dead man's teeth, and probably from the same source. This bar has probably been wiped on that very curtain or rug with which poor Brodsky was stifled. 
We will place it on the wall for future reference, and meanwhile, by hook or by crook, we must get into that house. There is much too plain a hint to be disregarded. Hastily repacking the case, we hurried to the front of the house, where we found the two officials looking rather vaguely up the unmade road. There's a light on in the house, said the inspector. There's no one at home. I've knocked a dozen times, got no answer. Don't see what we were hanging about here for at all. The house is probably close to where the body was found, and we shall find it in the morning. Thorndyke made no reply, but entering the garden, stepped up the path, and having knocked gently at the door, stooped and listened attentively at the keyhole. I'll tell you, there's no one in the house, sir, said the inspector, irritably, and as Thorndyke continued to listen, he walked away, muttering angrily. As soon as he was gone, Thorndyke flashed his lantern over the door, the threshold, the path, and the small flower-beds, and from one of the latter I presently saw him stoop and pick something up. Here is a highly instructive object, Jervis, he said, coming out to the gate and displaying a cigarette of which only half an inch had been smoked. How instructive, I asked. What do you learn from it? Many things, he replied. It has been lit and thrown away unsmoked. That indicates a sudden change of purpose. It was thrown away at the entrance to the house, almost certainly by someone entering it. That person was probably a stranger, or he would have taken it in with him. But he had not expected to enter the house, or he would not have lit it. These are the general suggestions. Now, as to the particular ones, the paper of the cigarette is the kind known as the zigzag brand. The very conspicuous watermark is quite easy to see. Now, Brodsky's cigarette book was a zigzag book, so called from the way in which the papers pull out. But let us see what the tobacco is like. With a pin from his coat, he hooked out from the unburned end a wisp of dark, dirty brown tobacco, which he held out for my inspection. Fine cut latakia, I pronounced without hesitation. Very well, said Thorndyke. Here is a cigarette made of an unusual tobacco similar to that in Brodsky's pouch, and wrapped in an unusual paper similar to those in Brodsky's cigarette book. With due regard to the fourth rule of the syllogism, I suggested this cigarette was made by Oscar Brodsky. But nevertheless, we will look for corroborative detail. What is that? I asked. You may have noticed that Brodsky's matchbox contained round wooden vestas, which are also rather unusual. As he must have lighted the cigarette within a few steps of the gate, he ought to be able to find the match with which he lighted it. Let us try up the road in the direction from which he would probably have approached. We walked very slowly up the road, searching the ground with a lantern, and we had hardly gone a dozen paces when I spied a match lying on the rough path and eagerly picked it up. It was a round wooden vesta. Thorndyke examined it with interest, and having deposited it with the cigarette in his collecting box, turned to retrace his steps. There is now, Jervis, no reasonable doubt that Brodsky was murdered in that house. We have succeeded in connecting that house with the crime, and now we've got to force an entrance and join up the other clues. We walked quickly back to the rear of the premises, where we found the inspector conversing disconsolately with the stationmaster. I think, sir, said the former, we'd better go back now. In fact, I don't see what we came here for, but here, I say, sir, you mustn't do that. For Thorndyke, without a word of warning, had sprung up lightly and thrown one of his long legs over the wall. I can't allow you to enter private premises, sir, continued the inspector, but Thorndyke quietly dropped down on the inside and turned to face the officer over the wall. Now listen to me, inspector, said he. I have good reasons for believing that the dead man, Brodsky, has been in this house. In fact, I am prepared to swear on information to that effect. But time is precious. We must follow the scent whilst it is hot, and I am not proposing to break into the house off-hand. I merely wish to examine the dustbin. The dustbin? gasped the inspector. Well, you really are a most extraordinary gentleman. What do you expect to find in the dustbin? I am looking for a broken tumbler or wine glass. It is a thin glass vessel, decorated with a pattern of small eight-pointed stars. 
It may be in the dustbin, or it may be inside the house. The inspector hesitated, but Thorndyke's confident manner had evidently impressed him. We can soon see what's in the dustbin, he said, though what in creation a broken tumbler has to do with the case is more than I can understand. However, here goes. He sprang up onto the wall, and as he dropped down into the garden, the station master and I followed. Thorndyke lingered a few moments by the gate, examining in the ground, while the two officials hurried up the path. Finding nothing of interest, however, he walked towards the house, looking keenly about him as he went, but we were hardly halfway up the path when we heard the voice of the inspector calling excitedly. "'Here you are, sir, this way!' he sang out, and as we hurried forward, we suddenly came on the two officials standing over the small rubbish heap and looking the picture of astonishment. The glare of their lanterns illuminated the heap and showed us the scattered fragments of a thin glass star pattern tumbler. "'I can't imagine how you guessed it was here, sir,' said the inspector, with a newborn respect in his tone. "'Nor what you're going to do with it now you've found it. "'It's merely another link in the chain of evidence,' said Thorndyke, "'taking a pair of forceps from the case and stooping over the heap. "'Perhaps we shall find something else.' "'He picked up several small fragments of glass, "'looked at them closely and dropped them again. "'Suddenly his eye caught a small splinter at the base of the heap. "'Seizing it with the forceps, he held it close to his eye in the strong lamplight, "'and, taking out his lens, examined it with minute attention. "'Yes,' he said at length. This is what I was looking for. Let me have those two cards, Jervis. I produced the two visiting cards with the reconstructed lenses stuck to them, and laying them on the lid of the case, threw the light of the lantern on them. Thorndyke looked at them intently for some time, and from them to the fragment that he held. Then, turning to the inspector, he said, You saw me pick up this splinter of glass. Yes, sir, replied the officer. And you saw where we found these spectacle glasses, and know whose they were? Yes, sir, where well, the dead man's spectacles, and he found them where the body had been. Very well, said Thorndyke. Now observe. And as the two officials craned forward with parted lips, he laid the little splinter in a gap in one of the lenses, and then gave it a gentle push forward. When it occupied the gap perfectly, joining edge to edge with the adjacent fragments and rendering that portion of the lens complete. My God! exclaimed the inspector. How on earth did you know? I must explain that later said Thorndyke. Meanwhile, we had better have a look inside the house. I expect to find there a cigarette, or possibly a cigar, which has been trodden on, some wholemeal biscuits, possibly a wooden vesta, and perhaps even a missing hat. At the mention of the hat, the inspector stepped eagerly to the back door, but finding it bolted, he tried the window. This also was securely fastened, and on Thorndyke's advice, we went round to the front door. This door is locked too, said the inspector. I'm afraid you'll have to break in. It's a nuisance, though. Have a look at the window, suggested Thorndyke. The officer did so, struggling vainly to undo the patent catch with his pocket knife. It's no good, he said, coming back to the door. Which left he broke off with an astonished stare, for the door stood open, and Thorndyke was putting something in his pocket. Your friend doesn't waste much time even in picking a lock, he remarked to me, as we followed Thorndyke into the house, but his reflections were soon merged in a new surprise. Thorndyke had preceded us into a small sitting room, dimly lighted by a hanging lamp turned down low. As we entered, he turned up the light and glanced about the room. A whisky bottle was on the table, with a siphon, a tumbler, and a biscuit box. Pointing to the latter, Thorndyke said to the inspector, See what is in that box. The inspector raised the lid and peeped in. The station master peered over his shoulder, and then both stared at Thorndyke. How in the name of goodness did you know that there were old mill biscuits in the house, sir? exclaimed the station master. You'd be disappointed if I told you replied Thorndyke. But look at this. He pointed to the hearth. 
where lay a flattened half-smoked cigarette and a round wooden vesta. The inspector gazed at these objects in silent wonder, while as to the stationmaster, he continued to stare at Thorndyke with what I can only describe as superstitious awe. "'You have the dead man's property with you, I believe,' said my colleague. "'Yes,' replied the inspector. "'I put the things in my pocket for safety.' "'Then,' said Thorndyke, picking up the flattened cigarette, "'let us have a look at his tobacco pouch.' As the officer produced and opened the pouch, Thorndyke neatly cut open the cigarette with his sharp pocket-knife. "'Now,' said he, "'what kind of tobacco is in the pouch?' The inspector took out a pinch, looked at it, and smelt it distastefully. "'One of those stinking tobaccos,' he said. "'They put them in mixtures. Let take here, I think.' "'And what is this?' asked Thorndyke, pointing to the open cigarette. "'Same stuff, undoubtedly,' replied the inspector. "'And now let us see his cigarette papers,' said Thorndyke. The little book, or rather packet, for it consisted of separated papers, was produced from the officer's pocket and a sample paper abstracted. Thorndyke laid the half-burnt paper beside it, and the inspector, having examined the two, held them up to the light. "'There isn't much chance of mistake in that zigzag watermark,' he said. "'This cigarette was made by the deceased. There can't be the shadow of a doubt.' "'One more point,' said Thorndyke, laying the burnt wooden vesta on the table. "'You have his matchbox.' The inspector brought forth a little silver casket, opened it, and compared the wooden vestas that it contained with the burnt end. Then he shut the box with a snap. "'You've proved it up to the ill,' said he. "'We could only find the app. We should have a complete case.' "'I'm not sure we haven't found the hat,' said Thorndyke. "'You notice that something besides coal has been burned in the grate?' The inspector ran eagerly to the fireplace, and began with feverish hands to pick out the remains of the extinct fire. "'The cinders are still warm,' he said. "'Now, certainly not all coal cinders. "'There's been wood burned here on top of the coal, "'and these little black lumps are neither coal nor wood, "'and may quite possibly be the remains of a burnt hat. "'But, Lord, who can tell? "'You can put together the pieces of broken spectacle glasses, "'but you can't build up an hat out of a few cinders.' He held out a handful of the little black, spongy cinders and looked ruefully at Thorndyke, who took them from him and laid them out on the sheet of paper. We can't reconstitute the hat, certainly, my friend agreed, but we may be able to ascertain the origin of these remains. They may not be cinders of a hat after all. He lit a wax match and, taking up one of the charred fragments, applied the flame to it. The cindery mass fused at once with a crackling, seething sound emitting a dense smoke, and instantly the air became charged with a pungent, resinous odour mingled with the smell of burning animal matter. "'Smells like varnish,' the station-master remarked. "'Yes, Shellac,' said Thorndyke. "'So the first test gives a positive result. The next test will take more time.' He opened the green case and took from it a little flask, fitted for Marsh's arsenic test, with a safety funnel and escape tube, a small folding tripod, a spirit lamp, and a disc of asbestos to serve as a sand-bath. Dropping into the flask several of the cindery masses, selected after careful inspection, he filled it up with alcohol and placed it on the disc, which he rested on the tripod. Then he lighted the spirit lamp underneath and sat down to wait for the alcohol to boil. "'There is one little point that we may as well settle,' he said presently as the bubbles began to rise in the flask. "'Give me a slide with a drop of farant on it, Jervis.' I prepared the slide while Thorndyke, with a pair of forceps, picked out a tiny wisp from the tablecloth. "'I fancy we have seen this fabric before,' he remarked, as he laid the little pinch of fluff in the mounting fluid and slipped the slide onto the stage of the microscope. "'Yes,' he continued, looking into the eyepiece. "'Here are our old acquaintances, the red wool fibres, the blue cotton, and the yellow jute. We must label this at once, or we may confuse it with the other specimens.' "'Have you any idea the deceased mate is deaf?' 
the inspector asked. Yes, replied Thorndyke. I take it that the murderer enticed him into this room and gave him some refreshments. The murderer sat in the chair in which he was sitting. Brodsky sat in that small armchair. Then I imagine the murderer attacked him with that iron bar that you found among the nettles, failed to kill him at the first stroke, struggled with him, and finally suffocated him with the tablecloth. By the way, there is just one more point. You recognize this piece of string? He took from his collecting box the little end of twine that had been picked up by the line. The inspector nodded. Look behind you. You will see where it came from. The officer turned sharply, and his eye lighted on a string box on the mantelpiece. He lifted it down, and Thorndyke drew out from it a length of white twine with one green strand, which he compared with the piece in his hand. Green-stranded, it makes the identification fairly certain, he said. Of course the string was used to secure the umbrella and handbag. He could not have carried them in his hand, encumbered as he was with the corpse, but I expect our other specimen is ready now. He lifted the flask off the tripod, and giving it a vigorous shake, examined the contents through his lens. The alcohol had now become dark brown in colour, and was noticeably thicker and more syrupy in consistence. I think we have enough here for a rough test, said he, selecting a pipette and a slide from the case. He dipped the former into the flask, and having sucked up a few drops of the alcohol from the bottom, held the pipette over the slide in which he allowed the contained fluid to drop. Laying a cover glass in the little pool of alcohol, he put the slide on the microscope stage and examined it attentively, while we watched him in expectant silence. At length he looked up, and addressing the inspector said, Do you know what felt hats are made of? Oh, I can't say that I do, sir, replied the officer. Well, the better quality hats are made of rabbits and hares' wool. The soft underfur, you know, cemented together with shellac. Now there is very little doubt that these cinders contain shellac, and with the microscope I found a number of small hairs of a rabbit. I have, therefore, little hesitation in saying that these cinders are the remains of a hard-felt hat, and, as the hairs do not appear to be dyed, I should say it was a grey hat. At this moment our conclave was interrupted by hurried footsteps on the garden path, and, as we turned with one account, an elderly woman burst into the room. She stood for a moment in mute astonishment, and then looked from one door to the other, demanding, Who are you, and what are you doing here? The inspector rose. I'm a police officer, madam, said he. I can't give you any further information just now, but if you'll excuse me, Austin, who are you? I'm Mr. Ickler's housekeeper, she replied. Uh, Mr. Ickler, are you expecting him home shortly? No, I'm not, was the curt reply. Mr. Ickler is away from home just now. He left this evening by the boat train. For Amsterdam, asked Thorndyke. I believe so. I don't see what business it is of yours, the housekeeper answered. I thought he might perhaps be a diamond broker or merchant, said Thorndyke. A good many of them travel by that train. So he is, said the woman. At least he has something to do with diamonds. Ah, oh, well, we must be going, Jervis, said Thorndyke. We have finished here, and we have to find a hotel or inn. Can I have a word with you, Inspector? The officer, now entirely humble and reverent, followed us into the garden to receive Thorndyke's parting advice. You had better take possession of the house at once and get rid of the housekeeper. Nothing must be removed. Preserve those cinders and see that the rubbish heap is not disturbed. And above all, don't have the rooms swept. An officer will be sent to relieve you. With a friendly good night, we went on our way, guided by the station master. And here our connection with the case came to an end. Hitler, whose Christian name turned out to be Silas, was, it is true, arrested as he stepped ashore from the steamer 
and a packet of diamonds subsequently identified as the property of Oscar Brodsky found upon his person. But he was never brought to trial, for on the return voyage he contrived to elude his guards for an instant as the ship was approaching the English coast, and it was not until three days later, when a handcuffed body was cast off on the lonely shore by Oxfordness, that the authorities knew the fate of Silas Hickler. Inappropriate and dramatic end to a singular and yet typical case, said Thorndyke as he put down the newspaper. I hope it has enlarged your knowledge, Jervis, and enabled you to form one or two useful corollaries. I prefer to hear you sing the medical legal doxology, I answered, turning upon him like the proverbial worm and grinning derisively, which the worm does not. I know you do, he retorted with mock gravity, and I lament your lack of mental initiative. However, the points that this case illustrates are these. First, the danger of delay. The vital importance of instant action before that frail and fleeting thing that we call a clue has time to evaporate. A delay of a few hours would have left us with hardly a single datum. Second, the necessity of pursuing the most trivial clue to an absolute finish, as illustrated by the spectacle. Third, the urgent need of a trained scientist to aid the police. And last, he concluded with a smile, we learn never to go abroad without the invaluable green case.